This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome to this very special edition of the Breaking Banks and Emerge Everywhere podcasts. Uh, I'm in the host seat. I'm your host, Brett King. Joining me is uh, Jen Tesha from the Financial Health Network. Jen. Hello. Welcome back to the show, your show and my show together. It's quite a special occasion. We have visiting all the way from Old Blighty, uh, the Lord Mayor of London himself. Uh, Lord Mayor, welcome to uh, Chicago in this instance. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. What what brings you to Chicago? Well, the, the Lord Mayor is the uh, ambassador for UK financial and professional services, but also for London as a global financial centre. And that means that everybody who has a stake in London is a constituency that I care about. And we have more international financial and professional services players in the UK, London in particular, than any other uh, uh, financial centre in the world. So uh, I, as Lord Mayor, would end up spending probably 100 days a year travelling around the world to between 25 and 30 countries, probably to 60 cities, um, talking to uh, in many cases, finance ministers, uh, governors of central banks, um, very large asset owners, uh, pension funds, uh, sovereign wealth funds, perhaps some family offices, of course, the big banks and insurance companies and asset management companies. Um, and we work very closely in conjunction with the Foreign Office and the Department of Business and Trade as well. So uh, on this particular uh, trip. I have been over in San Francisco. I'm here for a couple of days in Chicago and then going on to Toronto. So here um, we have just had breakfast with the uh, embassy and the Department of Business and Trade, catching up on a little bit of the local politics and some of the things that the government, the UK government is doing uh, in the Midwest, uh, talking about uh, the uh, existing discussions that are going on on, on trade. Uh, and uh, also about you know what's happening locally uh, from a political point of view. What's the uh, what is the uh, attitude towards the UK? Uh, what's happening in the fintech area? Uh, and um, you know what are the things that we should be thinking about in London as a global financial centre to be able to be um, uh, more responsive to uh, the big financial players over here. Mm. Having spoken to your predecessors, fintech has has been a real success for London. Um, in fact, in, in many ways, um, London preceded the US in terms of the success with the fintech market. Uh, we've all, we've always, we've all, all heard the stats of, um, the extraordinary progress that London made as a fintech center, more employees in the fintech sector than, than the United States, either in New York or San Francisco. Um, so, so, uh, very uh, uh, you know, well done on that. But, uh, you know, we, and we've spoken to your predecessors on that as well. But um, apart from fintech, what are the other emerging technology areas which London's really focus on investing in and providing a, a, an operating environment for? Well, look, I think 
although it's tempting to think about uh, fintech as uh, a, a sort of an industry in its own right, the fact of it is every industry needs to have technology at its core. Um, so it's we, we need to encourage tech innovation across the board. And the UK uh, has got um, four of the best 10 universities in the world, seven of the best 20 universities in the world, which is pretty disproportionate. Uh, and we've got, um, we've always had a very entrepreneurial culture. Uh, so fostering that technology base is, is really important. So it's not just fintech, but it's also green tech and renewable tech, uh, biotech, life sciences. These are all extraordinarily important areas and will be the industrial uh, core of the UK economy uh, in the 21st century. So encouraging that those sectors to thrive, uh, encouraging more people to join them, um, creating great jobs and creating wealth in those areas is going to be key. And that goes actually to the core of one of the things that I'm trying to accomplish in the course of my mayoralty, which is to generate more investment from the UK system in those sorts of companies, because successful as they have been, and they undoubtedly have, they have been pretty reliant on sophisticated overseas capital to help boost them once they've had their initial seed capital. The accelerator capital, the late Series A, Series B, Series D uh, uh, venture capital has tended to come from the most sophisticated players globally. Mm. I, I mean, this is a problem for many markets. The US, that's one of the powerhouses, particularly for Silicon Valley, is access to funding. Um, you know, my home, you know, I, I'm a, a, a joint um, UK and uh, you know, British and Australian citizen. Um, I wouldn't have guessed. There you go. <laughs> I resemble that comment. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, my mum was a Brom actually. She was from Birmingham, emigrated to Australia when she was 13. But, um, uh, you know, looking at, at the Australian market and the UK market, obviously different markets, but they both suffer from this lack of uh, institutional investment at a growth stage. Um, it really, you know, there is some early stage funding available, but once you get to, you know, writing the big checks, uh, there tends to be more reluctance from the pension funds and so forth. But we have specialist venture capital firms here in the US that manage, you know, billion uh, very large billion dollar funds and so forth. Um, you know, in the, in the VC community, household names like um, Andreessen Horowitz, et cetera. Um, how do you build that culture of investment? UK is a fairly conservative market when it comes to investment traditionally. Yeah, I think this is an absolutely key question. And I and just while you mentioned Australia, I was there five or six weeks ago. And, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Okay. I had the, had the most fantastic trip. I was in Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney in nine days, and uh, I was I was blown away with you know what what goes on there. I was there particularly actually to go and talk to the Aussie supers, right? Uh, because that is a great example yeah. of how a pension system can be mobilised to invest in you know core industries and core sectors at at an accelerator phase. And of course, what the Aussie supers have found is that they have almost outgrown. They've been so successful; they've almost outgrown the domestic market potential, mm. uh, just because they need some risk diversification. So they're looking internationally which is one of the reasons why they're all setting up offices in London, because, you know, the UK is such an important international marketplace for fund management. Uh, 
But going back to your core question, uh, we we have faced some uh, very interesting situations in in the UK because of the transition that's been made around our pension system. Um, when changes were made to effectively shut down the final salary schemes, the defined benefit pension system. You ended up without new funds coming into that pension system, and therefore it was in runoff. So you needed to match a set of guaranteed outcomes, guaranteed liabilities on that on this defined benefit pension uh, uh, liabilities with assets which delivered cash flows. And that inevitably led to sort of de-equitization of the DB pension system. So instead of gone from a 60-40 equity fixed income split, it went very, very heavily fixed income. And that, that, that worked okay. Um, it worked okay because you were matching off liabilities as interest rates came down, of course, and the discount rate that you used to apply to measure the present value of those future liabilities meant that a lot of those pension, uh, uh, pension schemes went into deficit. So at points at which uh, corporate sponsors were able to see that they could close out their risks and their exposures to those DB pensions, you saw um, those, uh, the, the, the risks effectively being insured by specialist players like Legal and General, Phoenix, Rothsay, PIC. And that's been a process that's been a good one, but it's, it doesn't really do what we're trying to do here, which is to, to put money into um, you know, the, private, the private equity market or the VC market. But replacing the DB pensions, and that there's just under two trillion pounds tied up in DB, we've got, we've got another two trillion in DC uh, local authority pensions and self-invested pension plans. And it's those pots where you're trying to accumulate capital over a long period of time that lend themselves to investment in unlisted securities. Don't need to have listed securities. Of course, you know, one always has to have a mind to liquidity. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's not as though these are in, you know, being, being in, in payout at this stage right. or in drawdown. In many cases, these are going to be 25, 30 years before you need the retirement income. So there is an opportunity for us to deploy some of that money. Uh, to help support uh, this particular area of this growth economy. So I'm proposing a future growth fund of £50 billion. Now, £50 billion in the greatest scheme of things uh, doesn't sound like an enormous amount of money. Of course, in VC, that's quite a lot. quite a bit. Um, uh, but it's one and a quarter percent of £4 trillion, which is what the pension pot is in the UK. Uh, but that, I think, would be a very strong statement of intent in the UK that we, are, that we really wanted to make these companies grow and scale and stay in the UK. Because if they reach you know, valuation of a billion dollars and then they're encouraged by their overseas owners to go and list, then they will become $5 billion, $10 billion, $20 billion companies elsewhere. We need them to really stay in, in, in the UK, or at the very least, have the option of doing so. Right. Well, I have to point out the irony, given that we're sitting in Chicago, which is has the most underfunded pensions in the nation, mm -hmm. <laughs> and we have paid the price for it. And it continues to be a massive challenge because 
um, the state constitution uh, uh, makes it almost impossible to renegotiate the terms of those pensions. So um, sometimes uh, a more conservative approach might actually be <laughs> a positive one in the long term um, from a fiscal stewardship perspective. Um, but I'm curious, you know, you talked about, wow, if we don't have the capital to keep these companies um, in London, they'll go elsewhere, they'll list elsewhere. Um, how much of that fear, that concern has been elevated by Brexit uh, and the other challenges that I would imagine fintechs and other technology companies face um, in being able to access the European market. Talk to me a little bit about that. I think um, as far as the city of London is concerned, you know, Brexit is very, very much in the rearview mirror. Um, it's a done deal. It's not like you can change it. It's not going to change. Right. Um, uh, and um, uh, I think that the 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 issue that was frustrating was that it was still being very much a political football, and that was preventing us from having you know, sensible conversations with our friends in the EU about mm -hmm. what is in our commercial mutual best interest. So it was very important to try and get some resolution to the big sticking point of Northern Ireland and the Windsor framework. Uh, which was agreed between the Prime Minister and Ursula von der Leyen, has changed significantly the tone of the conversation now. Uh, and so we're, we're really delighted to see that, although the Northern Ireland Protocol continues to require further push, we should not underestimate, the again, the political uh, issues that exist in Northern Ireland about trying to get the DUP to uh, rejoin Stormont. Um, the tone of the relationship between the EU and the UK has changed significantly. Um, and so we're now having, I think, really very constructive conversations. And that's important. And to be fair, the relationship between our regulators and European regulators continue to be extremely professional throughout the uh, political wrangling. But I wouldn't say that the problems that we're looking to, to face now are really Brexit-derived problems, but I would also be uh, keen to say that the solutions that we're finding uh, now are also not necessarily Brexit benefits. Um, I think there are that this, this uh, process of de-equitization and risk aversion actually stems much more back to the global financial crisis of 2007-8. Mm. Um, and that was when, of course, we um, changed the regulatory system in the UK and, and set up the PRA and the FCA, PRA to look at um, the prudential oversight of markets and, and, and systemically important players, and the FCA to look at after customers and customer outcomes. Um, and... I think what we are now doing is we're looking at that whole uh, situation. We're looking at it from the perspective of, you know, is there actually some EU legislation, particularly in insurance capital solvency too, which needs to be changed to be more appropriate to the sort of asset mix and product mix that um, 
uh, UK insurers have, and there are some. Yeah, I was going to. I was actually going to ask you about in, the insurance industry as another source of investment capital, um, given it's such a strong presence in the City of London. Yeah, and so the uh, again the insurance market uh, is a particular long term um, savings organizations are, if you like, the ideal um, lenders to long-dated infrastructure loans. Mm. But, but that has been constrained by solvency too, uh, because the capital ratios, mm. capital weightings that people have to put against those uh, uh, by investing in effectively unlisted debt instruments. This, the distinction is really between whether, whether an instrument is listed and unlisted. I see. So what we've been arguing for and the changes that are going through on solvency two now will mean that um, some of those long-dated assets they always have to be approved in terms of their, their risk um, component. We need to make sure that they're good quality assets, of course. But if they can be um, eligible assets for consideration in something called a matching adjustment fund, then it means that there'll be a lot of extra capital that will be released. Um, now, I think that's one of the issues that has been a sticking point, which is the regulator doesn't want capital to be released and sent back to shareholders. They'd, they'd be more comfortable, I think, with capital being released from its sort of technical provision that's going to be redeployed. And so the, the expectation is that we could be freeing up about £100 billion. Pounds. Mm. It could be... It could not back, an insignificant amount. Not an insignificant amount and, and important in stimulating uh, infrastructure lending. You know, the the uh, the property insurance market globally really came out of the um, 1666 Great Fire of London. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the need for property insurance was, was stimulated by that. So mm -hmm. London really is at the heart of, heart of this. Um, has there been any cadence change in respect to attracting talent into um, the city, um, you know, um, or London more broadly after Brexit? Or even just after the pandemic. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we uh, in the City of London need to do a better job of is banging the drum about not just the financial purpose of the financial and professional services industry, but also the social purpose of it too. Um, and I think we've seen a real transition uh, over the last. 15 to 20 years in that regard. But look, let's make no mistake about it. Every aspect of everybody's life revolves around the effective workings of a financial system. You know, whether it's you know, getting credit, making payments, um, looking at savings, borrowing money to own a house, um, everything, you know, trade finance, everything involves uh, credit, cash, payments, and insurance. Um, so there is a really critical part to play in that. And of course, um, you know, fintech is a very good example of how we can get lots of people involved in doing exciting things that will be transforming the conventional provision of financial services. The disrupting effect of fintech is immensely liberating and, and, it, and it sort of it stimulates a lot of creativity. So we, we want to get as many young people coming and working in any aspect of financial services. The fact of it is, it's a fantastic way to understand how the world works. Mm. And if you get a 
good financial training and understand uh, how things, how to raise capital, how to hedge risks, it will equip you to do whatever you want to do in your life as you start your own business and what have you. So we need to, to do a lot more of that. And one of the things that I've been focusing on as Lord Mayor is looking at this uh, really um, sort of painful divide that so many of our societies are finding between those who are well-educated, financially literate, digitally skilled, who have all the opportunities that are afforded by this burgeoning uh, new set of industries, and those who don't. And that gap is getting ever wider. So I had last week, we held the first um, Mansion House Summit on numeracy, financial literacy, and financial inclusion. We brought together 250 people uh, in a room and lots more online, representing lots of different organizations, uh, money and pension services, uh, credit unions, a lot of not-for-profit businesses and charities, banks, insurers, government officials, administrators, educators, academics, to talk about all of this and look at some of the examples that have, have been put in place in, uh, in other countries around the world who've been trying to deal with some of these same issues. And there is the, the, the answer lies in fintech. The, the, the answer lies with you know, a digital platform that, that people can access. And um, those who would otherwise not be able to have um, bank accounts or be able to get credit should be able to find that they have um, the, the ability to transfer money and and participate in the financial system. So that's a really important part of it. We had uh, Costa Perrick on the show a few weeks ago. Costa runs Bill and Melinda Gates's Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's uh, sort of financial health, you know, for the poor initiative. Um, you know, and he pointed out that, you know, we, we've newly included 1.4 billion people into the financial system um, since, was it like 2013, 2014? Yeah. Largely because of the effect of mobile money access and mobile wallets that are uh, uh, coming into play. Um, so that, that's interesting. It would tend to speak to what you're talking about, the fact that um, uh, the, the problem of financial literacy being a precursor to access to financial services in some respect has been solved with technology now rather than education. Um, and presumably with the tools that we're getting, uh, the sophistication of of the handsets, uh, AI inclu inclusion, you know, we should be able to have a, a you know, a, a pretty good self-managed environment. Um, we should. For, for this. We should. I think the inter some of the interesting statistics that have come out of the, the summit, for me at least, are that children start to form their views about money and, and, and financial things when they're age six or seven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have any real education about how young people should think about money, finance at, at primary school. We don't start sort of thinking of that, about that until they're sort of 12, 13 years old. And even then... It's been pretty tough to even get a bank account before you're 18. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, so I think there is stuff that we need to do. When we, we need to look at the curriculum and see whether or not there are things that, that we can do. Prime Minister in the UK at the moment is pushing um, that he wants mathematics to be a much more popular subject. He wants all young people to continue to study maths uh, up to the age of 18. Um, they call it math here. Yeah, okay. But it's fine. Yeah. We call it maths in Australia too. Uh, 
We were joking about this beforehand. Yes, we were. I was prepared to say maths. No, um, I've been practicing. Um, it's interesting because in the United States, um, math is required pretty much all the way up um, through high school. Having said that, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you go to university and if you're doing a math related, uh, um, you know, undergraduate study, you have to do a couple of years of, or a couple of units of algebra to, to catch up. Whereas I would say in the UK that that's, you, you come out of high school with some pretty solid algebra. Yeah, I think th- there are two aspects here. One is we want to, we want to train people in STEM subjects mm-hmm. right? um, mm-hmm. to make sure that they can move swiftly into a, you know, a tech-oriented business and be digitally very Because competent. every job in every industry is going to have a tech component moving forward. It will. But there's a, fundament, a much more fundamental problem that we're trying to deal with in the UK, which is that 48% of adults in the UK have the numeracy level of a primary school child, mm-hmm. 10, 9, 10, 11 years old. And it's very difficult to think about financial literacy, i.e. trying to help people understand about compounding power of Mm -hmm. interest, uh, you know, how they can compare different credit um, options, uh, how they should think about savings, if they don't have a basic familiarity and comfort with numbers. And numeracy is really about just a comfort with numbers. It's not even really talking about math. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but so, you know, the, the, the financial numeracy piece is, is, is definitely to do with confidence. Literacy is to do with education right. and then financial inclusion is often actually not necessarily directly connected to either of those. There are lots of people who are financially excluded who are very good at man- managing their money because they have to Correct. Pay. They've got Absolutely. very little money, but they're very good at budgeting. We've got, um, uh, I think, about 10 million adults in the UK who have savings of less than £100. So many of those are very competent about the way that they manage getting through the week. But, but you know, they don't have access. Many of those don't have access to any form of credit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to think about the role that technology has played in numeracy. Um, technology... Um, the calculator on my phone, all of the automatic, I don't actually have to understand or be comfortable. So I I like this idea of making sure that as we're engaging our young people with Mm -hmm. technology more and more, that in a way we have to add back a little bit of the traditional old school piece so that, you know, uh, out of sight, out of mind, right? If it's not something I actually have to do anymore, then I don't feel comfortable. Yeah. I mean, when, we, when we grew up as kids, though, we, you know, we were told you couldn't use calculators and so forth. Now, you know, I'm not doing longhand, you know, in a multiplication or something like that. You know, I, I'm, I'm using- But you don't even have to calculate the tip anymore, right? right? Because up pops, you stick your card in and up pops, here are the options. So even small things like that, yeah. Um, and that's great on the one hand. But I think the, uh, I, I would always, the, the, I think the danger of people being reliant on their um, calculators or computers, telephones, is they don't know what the, what expect, what the answer they should expect. Mm. So they, they, could, they could get it wrong right. by a factor of 10. So if you have a, a, a good, good numeracy, good basic sort of um, uh, basic math, you will say, well, I will expect the answer to be around three and a half. So if your computer then tells you it's 3.66, you say, well, that's fine. 
But if you're not, if you don't know what to answer and you press the wrong button and it says 36, you, you wouldn't say, right. well, you wouldn't say automatically, well, that's obviously wrong. Right. Well, and listen, we've placed the same kind of trust in technology and computers for, you know, the answer to a simple math problem in the same way that we've given, you know, we, we rely on social media now for all of our truth mm. and don't necessarily, people don't exercise the judgment mm. to decide whether that's something, whether the source of that information, right, is worth believing or not. So I think these things are, are connected. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the thing that I, I always find reassuring about math is that there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. Yeah. Uh, and it's not open to somebody's interpretation. Well, this, we need more of this certainty today. Uh, I do want to get into AI and its implications for London more broadly and, and culturally get your advice on that. But let's just take a quick break. Um, and uh, when we come back, let's let's jump into Emergent AI. Great. You're listening to uh, a, the mashup of Breaking Banks and Emerge Everywhere today with the Lord Mayor of London. We'll be right back after this break. When it comes to global payments, there's no standard consumer or one-size-fits-all solution. Each market's payment landscape is unique, and so are its participants. So how do you decide what's relevant to your business and your customers? Start with the Global Payments Report from our partner FIS, with data on more than 48,000 consumers across 40 global markets. The Global Payments Report breaks down how consumers pay today, both online and at the point of sale, and projects how behaviours will change in the future. Get up to speed with the fast-changing payments landscape and position your business for future growth. Download the Global Payments Report today by visiting worldpayglobalpaymentsreport.com. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. Welcome back to this mashup of Breaking Banks and Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher. I'm here with Brett King and, of course, the Lord Mayor of London. So we wanted to just uh, talk about uh, AI. There's a lot of conversation about regulation of AI at the moment here in the US. Um, you know, we just had this, uh, the, the Future of Life Institute, Elon Musk and others writing this letter, uh, suggesting a pause on the development of uh, next generation language learning models as an example. But part of your job is to sort of anticipate where things are going for London um, how do you think AI is going to impact this investment cycle in green tech, fintech, you know, talent, and um, even regulation in the UK? Well, I think uh, that's a, we used to say a million dollar question. It's, it's yeah, a trillion, trillion, trillion dollars. Question. <laughs> sure. um, uh, and I don't, I wouldn't begin to, to, to know the answer to that. What I would say, though, is that it's really important for uh, global financial centres like London to think about you know the direction of travel with things like ai uh, the use of blockchain and markets uh, big data uh, machine learning cryptocurrencies tokenization mm -hmm. um, um, and with that in mind and again you know the lord mayor of london uh, is in post for just one year yes so um i i, I can't trample all over my Successors turf. Although there has been a couple of Lord Mayors that have had two terms. 
There've been in the few, last six hundred years. Yes, <laughs> most recently uh, uh, during COVID, the Lord yes. Mayor did did a second year, and uh, we have to go back to the eighteen fifties before you uh, saw that uh, again. But um, we are doing a project in uh, in London, uh, working with a lot of the big uh, financial service companies and service providers to look at what the City of London, what we think the City of London needs to look like in twenty thirty mm. and beyond. So we have a a, a, a program to pull together a roadmap effectively, looking at all of these issues, looking also at green and sustainable finance Mm -hmm. and voluntary carbon markets, looking at what we were talking about earlier about the growth economy and how that should be funded through through the pension system and indeed pension system reform that's overdue Mm. in the UK, and also at financial inclusion and how we uh, we talk about a, it's an expression that we use in the UK called leveling up, which mm-hmm. is how we try and make sure that the wealth that is created in the UK spread um, throughout um, all regions. Um, and so we are working on on that, uh, as I say, with a with a, a bunch of very large financial service companies, not just UK ones, big US ones as well, to get a sense of what, what we want London to look like as a global financial centre. And the reason that we're doing that is we then want in September to go to the uh, two major parties around um, party conference time. So this is what the private sector feels is really important for London as a global financial centre. As we look at what New York is doing, as we look at what Singapore is doing, we see Tokyo and Shanghai doing. Um, And because to get these things right, particularly from a regulatory point of view, and the regulators are very much involved in this project too, you need to have a vision as to where you're trying to get to. The things like AI, you know, you need to be really looking out deeply into the future and saying, well, what are what are the implications of this for how financial markets work? Um, um, so I, I don't have the answers, but we will at least have um, we'll have framed some very interesting questions and some some options um, by September. So, um, if, if you were a young person starting out in your career today. You know, what, what advice would you give that young person in respect to this, this sort of disruptive future that we have coming with climate change and AI? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm a, a huge optimist. I'm a huge believer in the um, ability of humankind to find solutions to problems. Um, but we, so we need to empower young people, we need to encourage them. We shouldn't terrify them about the enormity of the challenges. We should... Uh, give them the confidence to go and tackle those. So, you know, get a good education, work hard, respect people, trust people. Um, We're going to come to solutions to these problems by working together. Um, So uh, uh, we're not fans in the City of London putting up barriers. We're great fans of building bridges. Um, And that's, so we don't like anything that smacks of sort of protectionism. Uh, we love uh, competition. We love working. We love partnerships, uh, and I think that that should underpin everything that we try and encourage our young people to do: um, be broad-minded, be open, be ambitious. Yeah, great, great way to finish today. Can I ask you just in uh, conclusion, um, how do people find out more about what the Lord Mayor's office is is doing, and how can we participate? Sure. Well, there's a, a website that um, uh, talks about all of the things that the City of London Corporation does, then the Lord Mayor sort of sits as part of that, sort of sits on top of that 
but um, you know there's a, there's a website around what the what the Lord Mayor does. There is a LinkedIn, which is always a good way of following what I'm doing on a regular basis. It's sort of pretty active. It may make you tired reading it, mm. um, but it's a it's a it's a it's fascinating. There are so many different components uh, to the work of the Lord Mayor. What we've been talking about is the most important. We do have a, a local authority, the City of London, which is its own city state that that operates. And then the Lord Mayor has a role in on, on the sort of the ceremonial side in the UK. So I'm looking forward on May the 6th to participating in the coronation. Absolutely, Wonderful. Absolutely amazing um, historical opportunity. So it sounds like you're having fun with the role. I'm loving it. Awesome. Well, Lord Mayor, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and and uh, all, all the best with your travels. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. At this stage of the show, it's, it's great we had the uh, the Lord Mayor on, um, but I uh, have the opportunity to welcome a friend back on the show, not only a friend, but a business partner, uh, my co-founder at Movin, Alex Sion. He's now the uh, Managing Director at Motive Partners. Alex, welcome back to Breaking Banks. It's been a while since you've been on the show, brother. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. It's great to be back. Great to talk to you again. Yeah, um, you know, uh, how is uh, how is life in VC land compared with yeah. being on the other side in the startup seat? No, it's it's very interesting to be on in a private equity firm like Motive. So we're we're a stage agnostic fintech specialist VC that kind of we build companies, we back companies, we buy companies in the tech space, and you can imagine after kind of post SVP SVB and kind of what's happening with fintech valuations that it's a very interesting time to be on the private equity side of the space and kind of I've, I've seen it full cycle, as you know, from starting it up at the dawn to working in big companies and now being on the private equity side. So it's been an interesting journey. No, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we, we, we are entering this new phase, as you've said, Silicon Valley bank, um, you know, it has created some challenges, um, but you know, it's created challenges for the traditional industry as much as it has for the VC space. I think you know. Yeah. I mean, that's there's the question now, and you see people like Jamie Dimon, um, you know, engaging yeah. on this is whether or not um, you know this this Silicon Valley bank collapse is a, an earlier indication of some sort of um, a structural impairment issue yeah. in the U.S. banking industry and indeed yeah. as a whole. Yeah. And there is a fairly strong argument for the fact that if you look yeah. at what caused SVB's collapse, the yeah. speed of deposit removal was a yeah. very big element of that. Yeah, um, fintech and, innovation. Yeah, right. causing exactly. the collapse. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting. Like, I, I, you know, when you look at SVB and what happened there, you know, there's the obviously the kind of the systemic banking thing, but also what's going to happen to the startup ecosystem, right? Uh, because that was such an under, uh, you know, kind of a iconic company underpinning a lot of the growth strategies, right? And just how how companies built were built, right, in the startup world, particularly in fintech. So I do think that 
you know. Uh, I mean, it's almost a point of pride, sides. isn't it, for a startup yep. to be represented by SVB, right? To get absolutely get, get uh, you know um, support from them. So absolutely, yeah. And I really do think that that is the, that is going to be significant change, probably just as significant, if not more significant, than the more systemic kind of problems, which I do think are kind of like more stabilized or they can be over, you know, the commercial real estate and stuff aside. But, uh, but I do think the, the impact to the startup, how startups work and what the next chapter of, of innovation will look like in FinTech and broadly is, is going to be the a key story, right. Coming out of SVB that has yet to be yet to evolve. But I think there are some predictions. Right. I mean, one of the thing, you know, you, you've got the, the value of, you know, now you're with a mainstream, private equity firm, obviously, but you also spent some time with what would be considered a strategic in, in yeah. terms of city ventures. Um, yeah. You know, um, is there more of an opportunity for players like City and, and others looking to innovate to come in now off the back yeah. of this? I, I, that's my big thesis. Like, I really do think that if you think about kind of, and you, you wrote about this recently, chapter one of FinTech, who created it? And it was really fueled by traditional kind of entrepreneur entrepreneurial models startup models that were kind of you know fueled by traditional venture capital right and basically taking on the industry from the outside and driving a lot of change and reaction there then you had the corporate vcs right sort of like get organized the companies like city chase you name it just about everyone in the fortune 1000 set up some sort of venture vehicle um, but they were generally playing catch up Right. Enormous amounts of money, but playing catch up and follow on. Like, uh, but I do think with with more of the traditional startup model, a little bit on shaky ground and just the nature of where fintech it is. I, I think that the next my thesis is that the corporates are going to have an outsized influence on this next phase, right, of yeah. fintech, not only from a funding perspective, but from a monetization perspective, like how these companies exit. Um, and then also just even from an idea perspective, where the next generation of ideas pop up from, with maybe within companies versus outside. Right. But we have two new waves of innovation potentially starting. Well, you know, um, one is is clearly the the AI mm-hmm. um, implications. Um, yeah. And then secondary um, will be, you know, what we might refer to as Web three, um, yeah. you know, from a metaverse uh, and augmented reality perspective, with with Apple launching their um, smart glasses this year, um, you know, and so that you know we've seen with the app ecosystem, we saw with the dot com, you know, created these massive bubbles, and so there is potential for two new, uh, you know, tech bubbles to emerge, particularly around AI. We see that happening yeah. right now. The number of AI companies launching, um, you know, is is pretty rapid. And um, you yeah. know, one of the, uh, the the founding team members of Facebook, Meta, uh, Chamath Palapatia, yeah. well known in the Valley. Um, you know, he came out the other day and he was saying that. You know, it's going to be a very different cycle for VCs as well in that, yeah. you know, before you were looking for these companies with 20 to 30 staff to produce this minimal viable product and, you know, you're having to write a check, you know, you get through the seed round, but then you're writing checks for 20 to $30 million for these MVPs. Yeah. Um, but now, um, but that's largely based on a function of how big the team is. Yeah. And now with AI, 
you know, if you can write good prompts and you've got good models, then, you know, yeah. you could be, it could be four or five people. So, yeah. um, you know, we could see smaller checks in the VC space, um, you know, initially at yeah. least with the AI I, stuff. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, and I think you're spot on in terms of uh, all of those comments, the bubbles themselves and the AI as well as Rev3 are potential. And those are ones that are actually, because of the way they're regu- you know, regulation sort of, uh, uh, angle uh, is going to make it hard, right, for the fintechs to, uh, for the traditional incumbents to lead in those spaces. Yeah. So that's an area AI in particular that Motive is very interested in. And, and to your point on efficiencies, like, yeah, absolutely, that that's a game changing technology, right? Um, but you, as you know, there's companies out there like Casisto, right? Like, uh, you know, the folks that we we know well um, that, you know, that, that first era of just natural language processing and optimizing search that is already kind of deep within banks. So this evolution, my, my hope is it could happen pretty rapidly, right? Because the, mm-hmm. the in some ways, the UX is already there, right? Whereas before, when you and I were starting moving and some of the others, you had a, a paradigm change in UX, um, but right. if you're kind of just adding on and just essentially making chat smarter, making the, the phone calls smarter, making humans behind those things smarter, um, then then you don't have as much of the kind of experience disruption, right, right. as as you would, which I think makes it a really really interesting space. AI. Right, it's more plumbing, you know, process process automation and and. Uh, but you know, I mean, I think there's a strong argument that um, you know things like chat or human level um, support um, that that's becoming viewed as as a design problem as well, right? In, yeah. in that um, you know, if you if you listen to the likes of WeBank, you know, in Shenzhen and others, they talk about if you need to speak to a human, we failed from a design yep. perspective, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know we now have the gap to have human. We're closing the gap on human-like experiences with AI. Yeah. That's going to close yeah. pretty quick, quickly. No, um, absolutely. And it's absolutely. not. It's just not. Not just in financial services, of course. It's going to happen in. Um, you know, in healthcare, in particular. Yeah. You know, your advice uh, from a doctor yeah. will be AI uh, augmented. Yeah. And, Things like yep, that. Yep, in the in so the wealth wealth space, wealth management. Yeah, yeah no, a- absolutely, Brent. Man. And I think this is another one where I, if I think about fintech and this next generation with corporates, some of this mentality, the way you and I are talking, the envisioning kind of the world of the future, when you know when we started out moving a w- long time ago, it was kind of pushing uphill, right, to get oh, people yeah. to understand some of these concepts. But I do think that the cultural change now. Right. Um, within large financial institutions, if I had to say anything, the, the biggest success of chapter one was getting people to understand that this is this is happening. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, this is happening and that and and understanding more easily the applications of technologies, not maybe not be able to move as fast as they'd like, but it, it, I do I don't think at any of the large institutes any of the large institutions out you're gonna get the same cynicism. Right. Um, well, you know, just I, out rejection. No, I mean, I think that that that's as you say. It's you know, we we've done the education. The disruption yep. is fairly clear. All of yep. the fastest growing financial institutions in the world tend to be these technology led companies, right? Yeah. In fact, yep. uh, you know, I don't I don't know of an exception to that. You know, so you got yep. New Bank, We Bank, yep. Stripe, etc. Right. So, yep. um, uh, you know, it's yep. it's an interesting time. Um, yep. You know, ba- but banks. You, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, to that to that point, like, you know, you have these fast growth companies coming from the outside in that traditional model. 
to me, the the opportunity is is capital, right? Like if you think about the capital that was coming from VCs and the models that they were pushing, right? Growth at any cost, unicorn based, that that kind of thing, where, where corporates can be more methodical and and more kind of well thought and more long term in their thinking. I think in in some ways the environment favors that. So no, it's no longer about multiple, right? There was there was a time when fintech was all about most multiple growth multiples now it's about really the vision right what is yeah. the what is the the underlying premise of the technology and the transformation that there that is the the story and is the the business model behind it that's a different kind of investor that's a different kind of growth strategy to what you were saying mm. that's a different kind of way to build right a company so you're maybe not not going direct to consumer but focusing much more on enterprise and partnerships kind of out of the gate. So there's a lot of things that I think change because of this shift that we're in, but it's going to be really interesting. Now, you know, um, you coming out of City Ventures and having seen City go through very significant changes in terms of their business model, you know, yeah. over the last couple of years, um, you know, you, you also have a bunch of banks in, in in the states that are getting consolidated now. If you if we yeah. look at this as a trend, I mean, yeah. you know, the the number of banks in the US is is roughly half what it was, um, you know, fifteen years ago. So consolidation yeah. is occurring very aggressively in the United yeah. States. Yeah. Um, but we've seen because of the pandemic, and of course this was a trend before the pandemic, just accelerated by the pandemic, particularly for retail. You know, all of the account opening is shifting to digital now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got so many of these community banks reliant on branches for revenue yeah. and things like that. Yeah. It would and, appear and to deposits. be some, you know, a, a, yeah. And, um, you know, the the risk management side, you know, we're now seeing that the technology players, which is, this is a surprise conclusion, right? Yeah. That the yeah. technology players are actually better on in, in many instances at managing risk than the traditional yeah. traditional players, right? Yeah. Which yeah. the the argument always was from the incumbents that, yeah, while the, the, um, the, you know, the fintechs might be able to do this sexy CX stuff, they'll never be as good at risk management as, as we are. And yeah. the, the, analysis you know if you look at new bank you look at we bank uh, you look at alipay you know they they are you know better than industry performance in terms of non-performing loans ratio and, yeah. and fraud and and things like this yeah. so it yeah. sort of seems like structurally that the banking model you know with svb yeah. and and uh, you know these elements is the fundamentals of of banking are being attacked sort of across the board um, you know yeah. what does this mean for the the um, the structure of the sector moving forward. Yeah, you think? yeah, I I think so. On a broad level, I am. I think one of the bigger trends is community banks are are waking up. Right, you know, they they are kind of like aggressively now moving into digitization and adopting and and, Only and investing. Late, but yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and investing. But they're getting there. And you know, it's always that human connection at the end of the day of how do you kind of establish that relationship. That is always going to be kind of the holy grail for everybody. To to your other point on on essentially risk management, I I agree with you. I think the the, the but this also impacts startups as well as incumbents. Everybody right. knows now that you can't ignore like growth at all costs without focusing on 
risk fundamentally and being able to control scale in a kind of in a responsible way is the key. And they're both technology driven, right? Growth is technology driven and risk management can be transformed by technology. The firms that get that right and are investing in both are poised to win, right? right. Um, and and uh, I will push on one thing you said, like I do think, yeah, the fintechs that have gotten that right, absolutely, right, you know, um, but the ones, the incumbents that that really have the ability to break down the walls and, and kind of get into the, 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 the heart of the organization and change the way they approach risk, um, you know, they they are, they know the game too, right? So if they can, yeah. if they can really transform themselves digitally, you know, there could be some really powerful plays out of that. But let's let's talk about that. I mean, you've seen both sides of this. Well, you, you not only did you work as head of mobile for Chase after you left Moven, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, but yeah. you you also then went into the venture side on strategics and now in the yeah. in the in the um, you know the industry side. But um, uh, you know, having said that, you know, one of the things that you faced as an issue was the um, the roadmap cycles yeah. for yeah. the big the big uh, players, yeah. you know, tends to be one to two years out, whereas yeah. fintechs are a lot exactly. more agile, right? Yeah. You know, so there, there's still that sort of fundamental cultural shift. Are you seeing yes. a cultural change there, do you think? Yeah, I think in the next wave of corporate innovation, there's so much emphasis. Not It's no longer about the what and why. It is about the how. Right. So I think the, the you know the ideas the ability to generate and validate innovative ideas, people got that down and they come up with great ideas. But that execution model, right? How do you actually go about getting something to market? That's where structural change is needed. And and I think there's the good news is that there's there's a lot you know this is where partnerships come in. So I do think ba- banks are more willing now, whereas before it was a build centric culture. Now this idea of partnering to get agility, right? And and creative ways of partnering, not just kind of like pay a vendor, right. but co-invest, co-develop, you know, kind of joint venture, a lot more creative opportunities there uh, and ways to finance and structure those things, to be honest. So I do think that that, I, I see that, right? I see banks pursuing partnership models in very creative ways to solve those agility problems. And internally, what sort of um, org, org chart changes does that require? Because previously, you know, when Moving first, got, when it started going out to banks like TD and so forth, yeah, we had a business sponsor, but essentially it was procurement that managed the yep. the process. And that was in itself yep. problematic because they were yep. very legally focused. Um, but yep. is that sort of changing now structurally within these uh, banks in terms of yeah, partnerships? Absolutely. So what I see is an evolution from more centralized innovation teams to more kind of decentralized, embedded into business uh, you know, innovation teams and and a, and a contemplation of these, what I would call as separate pathways, whether you think of them as venture studios or partnership pathways, but these creative path lanes of execution, uh, you know, again, falling, you know, being overemphasized versus build strategies. So I do think structurally what that means is you got like, it's no longer the realm of that ideation and sort of let's explore broadly. It's more let's lock in on on high potential areas and then really figure out ways in which we can we can invest and and creatively execute you know in 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 more of a serious way versus a more exploratory way um 
So there's but this, this is, I mean, again, culturally, you see these fintechs like Revolut and others that will try launching a feature, then they'll pull it back, you know, because it didn't work and things like that. That that level of experimentation in the fintech side is is you know is one of the strengths. And then the other element is, you know, you talked about um, CX UX stuff. I mean, um, that is a core capability for yeah. um, you know fintechs, whereas. In most cases, you know, e- even with the likes of uh, the very large banks in the US, they're still outsourcing design to agencies and stuff, right? Yes. Or is, yeah, that, definitely. is that coming a bit internally? I think it's coming a bit internally. There's been a lot of progress on that at the large banks that I've seen. Again, it's but the sensibility as well as the skill set building in that area that's, that's gone all the way. The one thing that you mentioned, the sandbox, the ability to test in a sandbox, right. that's still a tough thing to do. Right. And I think there there are again, but this is where partnership models come in and the more openness to being able to think about creative ways. So it's it's a problem that rec- that you recognize like you can't really move as fast as Revolut if you can't get to customers if it takes a month or two to get any new idea approved. So that that is definitely a problem to be solved. But I think there's 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 again a, more of a, a recognition of the problem and and sort of creative lanes to solve it now. So I'm also optimistic about that for some of the larger institutions. But it still takes leadership. At the end of the day, yeah. you, you got to be committed committed to winning. And I think the also good thing is that now that the spaces where where there's threat are are more clear versus before you were kind of investing, like, again, like bet the table because we don't know where it's coming from. Now that they know, right, you can double down, right, if you're a big company and you can you can really commit. So what uh, are some of those specific areas that you think um, are being doubled down on? Yeah, so I think there's there's a motive is organized around sort of eight big eight big thesis, which are sort of those areas. So like wealth management, private markets, marketplaces in general, digital assets, uh, democratization of finance. Um, there, there's a couple of big themes that I do think kind of no no bank is not going to have those things on their roadmap. Uh, and if it's on their roadmap, you can be assured that they have the capital, right? This is where it comes down to who's got the most money and who can who can mobilize it fast enough. So if you can imagine the banks kind of know what they're betting on, and, and they now know how to build, build back and buy things in a better way. It's it's you know like I said, it's the, before in the fintech phase one, they were just figuring out what they were doing. Um, but now that now that they do, and now that there's defined spaces and set priorities. You know, it, it could be very interesting. So, if you're a smaller bank, you know, um, globally, um, you know, under a hundred billion of assets, you know, you you're in um, you're in the U.S. as a community bank. You know, you're reliant on your core system provider in many ways. How do you break out of that cycle to really do these types of innovations and? and partner with, you know, fintechs to do more exciting stuff. Yeah. I think that in and of itself is an area of innovation. Right? Like right. So there will be like how community banks find that third lane. Uh, the optimistic part is that they, because of advances in open banking and even some of the large incumbent platforms, FIS, FISERV and the, and the like, make it easier, right? There, there's the ability to consume third-party solutions is, is a lot easier now. And like I said, you've got like, you know, Alloy and Bank Tech Ventures and a couple of the folks that are really trying to mobilize that community banking segment in the U.S. to be able to invest, right, in, in innovation and, and nurture companies. So I do think um, there, there's a lot of attention there, but but you're right on the problem, right, is that they've got yeah. to find a way to, 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 to kind of move faster. 
So I, I want to ask you a bit of a question from left field here now. You know, sure. I mean, we went through the, um, you know, the hard yards with moving in those early days. Uh, it, it was incredibly satisfying in terms of, you know, breaking ground and, and so yeah. forth, but it was also pretty tough. Would, yeah. You know, we've seen a lot of people come out of the VC private equity space and do their own startups. Would you ever go into a startup again yourself? I, I, you know, I, I, I have my hats off to every entrepreneur and startup founder. It is the, it is the most rewarding thing, the hardest thing, and the thing that you will learn the most from in your life, as Brett, Brett you and I both know. Um, yeah, you, you know, the quick answer to your question is, I, I get to live the best of both worlds now, right? right. I get to, right, right. I get to support entrepreneurs on a broad scale and, and, and help them succeed and kind of use the things I've learned now. Uh, to you know, to kind of help them with the pattern recognition and the kind of channels to succeed. I guess that's a good argument, Brett. For us, we should start another company. Because maybe, now we know yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so what advice would you give to an entrepreneur yeah. trying to start yeah. in, in the space today? today for, from a fintech perspective, I I think you know, like I said, my my big thing is that strategics are not dangerous. Um, so I would say, like, out of the gate, you need to, you know, you need to think about models that work with banks versus that take them down. And right. and and that idea, I think which that, I think that's the general trend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, but, and but no I mean, it, it, you know, like you talked about the fact that you're not vendors anymore. They're partnerships. I mean, it, yeah. is is that um, is is that culture emerging within the banking yeah. sector now? I think it's not a bad idea. If you have, if you're an entrepreneur with an idea, maybe your first phone call needs to be to a bank, right? And and say, can can you co-invest? Can you build this with me, right? I've got this idea. Um, you know, I I think that's that's a play that wasn't there when you and I were kind of starting out. Yeah, right. You had to kind of go to the traditional Silicon Valley uh, investors, but I do think right. that that's uh, if if I do it all over again, I do it now. Yeah, I do yeah, it that yeah. way. It might take you a bit longer to secure the funds, though, right? Because yeah, the strategics, no, no. yeah, they, exactly. they, you know, their process of approvals and stuff. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, um, I we, unfortunately we run out of time. Um, always yeah. great to uh, to catch up with you, bro. We, we're overdue yeah. for for uh, a, a sit down as well. But um, definitely um, next time you're in the city. Yeah. How do people find out more about what you're doing and what what's happening at Motive? Oh, you know, you can go to the motivepartners.com website and kind of check out what we're about. Uh, and I also wrote recently a white paper on kind of corporate innovation 2.0, which if you either ping me on LinkedIn or something like that, I'm, I'm happy to send anyone who's interested. But it kind of shows about the predictions of where, where fintech and fintech investing is going to go and with a focus on corporates. Awesome. Well, Alex Sion, Managing Director at Motive Partners and co-founder of the world's first mobile neo bank movement. Um, awesome. Thank you for being on the show today. Okay, thanks, Brett. It's great to great to be here. And that's it for the show today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you uh, tweet it out. Uh, you know, give us a status update on it. Um, you know, also, you know, if you can uh, give us a five star rating, and you know, it all helps people find the content over time. Um, of course, my thanks go out to the team at Provoke for the production. Liz Perseverance, Kevin Hersham on the production side, and uh, Sylvia and Carlo on the social media uh, side as well. Um, but that's it for uh, Breaking Banks this week. We will be back for another episode next week as we get closer and closer to our 10th anniversary show. Stay tuned for more Breaking Banks. 
That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast, and in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.